Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2 has been surgical. First, he defends against the accusation of drunkenness. Logically, the accusation was baseless. Biblically, the accusation was unfounded. Then, Peter explains to the crowd, to this audience, what this event meant. It was the essence of their question. And once again, his process is extremely methodical. Jesus was sent by God, as Peter says, attested by miracle signs and wonders. He then says, though you knew this, you took him anyway by lawless hands and crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. Alive, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, received the promise of the Holy Spirit, and poured out this, answering their question, which you now see and hear. Now, after making it clear that Jesus had indeed been resurrected to life, Peter boldly closes his sermon by presenting the implications of all of this, something that it would be wise for them to consider. He closes, therefore, summing it all up, because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is well, because Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Let all the house of Israel feel his boldness. Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ. You know, one can accurately say that everything that the Holy Spirit has been doing on this day, this the, the day of Pentecost. Everything he's done, beginning with his arrival with this thundering sound, pouring himself upon the 120, enabling them to worship in foreign tongues, filling the, the apostles with boldness to take a stand, using Peter's natural leadership giftings to preach to the multitudes. Everything that the Spirit has, has obviously been up to you can say in some regards that it all has been working to this glorious moment. For we read in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You know, the most glorious work of the Holy Spirit the, the most wonderful manifestation of the Spirit's power here being present in Jerusalem on this day, you could say that the work might have been most evident in the softening of the hearts of these listeners. This group of religious men, this group of devout Jews, this group that had been present for the arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus, possibly some of this group being there to chant Hosanna, Hosanna the King, but also being present to shout out crucify him. This group, I can see Peter, he's building up, and I know this as a preacher, sometimes you kind of get going, and you get yourself to your conclusion, and you just drop the hammer, and then there's a moment and the internal conversation happening behind your mouth, did I just say that? Like, I can imagine that there's Peter in this moment where he's like, therefore, this Jesus, God has made both Lord and Christ. And then he pauses and he thinks, snap. 
that might end poorly for me. I can sense this pause. They're looking around. Peter doesn't know if they're going to respond in faith or respond in stones. It's 50-50 at this point if you're Peter. And yet, we're told that they were cut to the heart. This word cut, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word. It's a long one. But it indicates that they were literally pierced. Pierced in the heart. Like the conviction of the Holy Spirit in this moment, the words that Peter was uttering, they went through the eardrums, went down into the soul, and it was like they had been stabbed in the heart. It was a conviction that produced a physical pain. Have you ever experienced it? I know I have. You know, it's a fact that the first legitimate child of truth is always conviction. But then, what happened? They were cut to the heart, but it didn't stop there. They then asked, what shall we do? It's as though the magnitude of the moment, the magnitude of what they've done, it all comes crashing down upon this multitude. It starts to settle in. They're pierced in the soul and the heart, and they're like, what have we done? In essence, they're kind of asking, is there hope? What's next? They don't argue with Peter. They don't defend themselves. They realize they've been caught red-handed. They know they're guilty. And their plea, their plea is what do we do now? It is a crucial, a critical reaction. You see, I'm of the opinion that the spirit of, of truth, the Holy Spirit, it always produces conviction deep within the soul of the hearer. Now, sometimes you'll never see it. Sometimes in response to the conviction, that internal knowledge, there is a defiance that wells up within the here. Conviction doesn't always manifest itself into positive results. Sometimes the results of this work are completely predicated upon now the willingness of the hearer to act accordingly. You're cut with conviction. You're hit in the gut. The heart is pierced. What happens next is of the utmost importance. You see, resisting the conviction of the Spirit, it'll only yield destruction. The Bible tells us this. Worldly sorrow leads to the destruction of the hearer. But, as we see in this instance, they're cut with conviction. But they embrace this conviction. They follow up on this conviction and they yield a plea towards repentance. You know, we mentioned it last Sunday, but one of the incredible aspects of this sermon is that Peter, Peter doesn't solicit a response at all. He closes his sermon, he drops the hammer, drops the mic, and he's waiting. And then there is a response of the people. What do we do? Like, it's really evident that the Spirit's working because he doesn't put a guilt trip on them. He doesn't like, okay, raise your hands if you want to get saved. And then when no one really raises their hands, he starts like fumbling and rephrasing it. Well, now if you want to rededicate your life, just because he doesn't want to stand up there awkwardly. No, he, he drops it, he leaves it, and then there is a response from the people. I love this quote. It's been said that in normal seasons of Christian work, the evangelist seeks the sinner. Yet in times of revival or awakening, it's the sinner who's seeking the evangelist. 
So in response to their question, probably surprised that stones aren't flying, Peter says to them, verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and he exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. The first thing that Peter does in response to conviction, as he tells them, repent. Now, tragically, most people have a false understanding of what biblical repentance actually looks like. It's, it's sometimes difficult to tell the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. You see, everybody's sorry when they get caught. But you really can tell, you can really differentiate between the two when you take a step back and you look at the reaction from that moment. After the tears subside, is there change? Is there action? Is there a result? I'm going to kill this moth that's flying around me. Let's just get that out of the way. You knew it. I knew it. I'm trying to ignore it. It had to be addressed. This satanic moth is trying to distract us. Repentance. You see, repentance is not, I'm sorry. Repentance is more than feelings of sorrow. In the Greek, the word repent, the word that Peter uses here, it describes a person making a conscious changing of the mind that produces a change of direction. It's what the word literally means. You see, in exhorting the audience to repent, Peter is literally telling them that they need, first and foremost, to change their mind's concerning Jesus, and then to turn from themselves and follow after him. In its most simplistic state, repentance can be simply defined as siding with God against self. You see, in order to come to Christ, one must turn from something. In order to come to Christ, one must leave behind something. And in essence, itself. Let me paraphrase an interesting observation that David Guzik makes and his commentary on this passage. He says, responding to the question, what shall we do? Peter, he gave them something to do. Which means that we must do something to be saved. We must do something to follow Jesus. Salvation doesn't just happen independent of our involvement, it requires repentance. Now, please understand, it is 100% true that salvation is only a manifestation of our faith in Jesus. We're not saved by works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by faith and faith alone. But repentance, repentance is the critical first act of the will responding to the conviction of the Spirit, whereby we turn from self 
And we come to him for the purpose of salvation. Jesus says to forsake yourself, to take up your cross, to follow him. Picture, for the sake of an illustration, a thief who's in the midst of his evil scheme. When he hears the words, stop, you're under arrest. That single moment, the moment of guilt, the moment he knows he's been caught, the moment where that piercing takes place, he's now forced to make an important decision, right? He can run or surrender. Understand, repentance, it's more than just acknowledging guilt or acknowledging you've been caught or acknowledging that you're wrong. No, repentance, it's akin to the thief and this moment making the choice to stop what he's doing, to raise his hands in surrender, to slowly turn around to face the captor who now determines his fate. This is what repentance is. It's stopping. It's surrendering. And then it's giving yourself over to the fate of the one who's caught you. C.S. Lewis, he has said that every story of conversion is a story of blessed defeat. It's when you throw up your hands, when you say, I can't do it anymore, and you come to Jesus. Repent. Repent is the first word of the gospel. You know, it's not an accident that John the Baptist began his first sermon with the word repent there on the shores of the Jordan. Jesus started his ministry with the word repent. And now here, Peter does the same. Repent is the core message of the gospel, for without repentance, no man can be saved. Then Peter He says, repent. And then what does he do? He continues. He says, but let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, though a cursory reading of this verse seems to kind of indicate that maybe Peter's making the argument that baptism is essential for salvation. Please note this isn't the case for three reasons. We're not going to spend much time on this. I refer you back to other messages, uh, even within the book of Acts, that lay this out. But first, practically, we have examples in the Bible contrary to the idea that baptism is essential for salvation. You go back to the thief on the cross. Today, you'll see me in paradise. Even in Acts, the conversion of Paul or Saul in Acts chapter 9, we see that he's saved and three days later baptized. We see in the story of Cornelius and his family there, Peter, Acts chapter 10. He goes, the Spirit's poured out, they're saved, and then it's later that they're baptized. So we find practical examples that go against this notion. Doctrinally, salvation is presented as a manifestation of faith, not works. If we had to be baptized to be saved, well, that's a work. So wait a second, now we're not saved by Jesus' atoning blood on the cross, but now we're saved by my act of being baptized. Not to mention it would be a little weird because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Baptism was essential for salvation, then Paul seems kind of kind of contradictory there. <laughs> I could care less about baptizing. I'm here to preach. 
But if it was essential to salvation, then wouldn't he care a little bit more? Thirdly, I don't think you can even make the argument that baptism is essential for salvation from what Peter's saying here. The word for, Peter says, be baptized, what? For the remission of sins. And that's where we get this controversy. It's, I think, incorrectly translated into English. I think your English translation actually yields some confusion here. In the Greek, we find the word E-I-S. It means, not for, but because of, or on account of. Literally, Peter is saying, because your sins have been forgiven, you should be baptized. On the account of it, because of it, be baptized. Baptism. Baptism was encouraged by Peter in this instance and moving forward to be a public expression of their saving faith. They've come to Jesus. They've experienced salvation. Now Peter's encouraging them to do something to let everyone know, to make a public expression, to be baptized. And this would have been a big deal for a group of devout Jews who were familiar with baptism, but very rarely ever participated in it. You see, in Judaism, water baptism was a ceremonial proceeding, yes, for the priests on occasion, but more importantly, for Gentile converts to Judaism. The act of being immersed in the water signified the cleansing of sin and rebirth into the family of God. It was symbolic, and so Peter's saying, be baptized. They understood the, the symbolism behind it in the name of Jesus, not the name of Judaism. Do what the Gentiles do, because you're just as lost. Repent, be saved, then let the world know is in essence what Peter's encouraging them towards. Now we can't move forward without at least addressing the phrase, the remission of sin. I love this phrase. The word remission is the Greek word aphis, meaning to be released from bondage or imprisonment. The phrase, the remission of sin, should be translated to be released from the bondage of sin by the remission of the penalty for sin. It's a beautiful phrase describing what Jesus has done for us, that he, by his work on the cross, released us from the bondage of sin by paying the penalty for sin. And then he closes, Peter, with an exhortation. Be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved. It's a common phrase we use, to be saved. But what does it really mean? The phrase itself literally means to be separated. The word doesn't present an action that we're being exhorted to take. It's not as though Peter's like, you need to be saved. Go out there and do it. Like, if you could do it, then there would be no need to be saved from it. Like, it doesn't describe what we go out and do. Rather, it's a position we're commanded to have, that we're to be saved. It's like a be attitude. You don't go out and do them or they would be do attitudes. You're being saved, to be saved. If you could do it, you wouldn't need to be saved from it. So it describes not an action. He's not telling them to go out and to be separated from this perverse generation. He's literally saying you need to be saved from this perverse generation. Sometimes we get this all confused because we get in our mind that being saved now means I'm separated or need to be separated. I don't do that. I am separated from the perverse generation. That doesn't mean I now leave it. 
or run from it or escape. I'm saved. I'm already separated by what Jesus has done. Now I'm living in the perverse generation. You know, it's interesting that we find the exact same phrase, be saved, in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Same phrase. The question is how are we saved if I can't do it? We're saved through him. We're separated by him. The work is his, the result we find in us. And you know what's interesting? Think about the audience that Peter's saying this to. This wasn't a group of heathens. It it wasn't like Peter's strip club ministry here. I mean, these guys, they were devoutly religious. It's like he's walking into a southern church saying, you need to be saved. I thought I was saved. Are you? How so? Well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I I obey this and I, I obey that. Look at what I'm doing to be saved. I'm being saved. But you can't save yourself because you're lost. You see, you need Jesus. He's exhorting a group of religious people. Oh, a word for Southerners. Then those who gladly received his word, were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Then those who. I don't know if you, if you noticed that, but the sad reality is that not everyone responded to Peter's sermon. I mean, even with everything that's happening there at Pentecost and this incredible manifestation of the Holy Spirit and Peter preaching boldly, there were still people present that thought, nah, no thanks. Then those who, we will find next Sunday that there was a a large contingency of people that resisted what was happening on this day. They would resist it, they would persecute it, they would fight against it in so many ways. But Luke the historian does tell us that 3,000 people gladly received the word, and were baptized. 3,000 converts. What an incredible, incredible scene. Now, before we move forward, I think it would be prudent to maybe look at the event of Pentecost from the macro perspective of Scripture. We've, we've looked at the details of what's happened here in kind of the minutia. But let's kind of maybe take a step back for just a moment, bear with me, to look at what's happening here from like, the big picture, right? If you go all the way back, and we're going back to Genesis chapter 9, in response to the depravity and the rebellion of man's sinful nature, which responded in a global flood that killed them all, God commanded Noah and his family, gave them specific instructions to now spread out and fill the earth. Sadly, according to Genesis 11, Noah's descendants defied this command and decided to do the opposite. They came together and they built the Tower of Babel, a structure to reach to the heavens that they covered in tar, pitch. It was a waterproof tower. I wonder why they would do that. 
It's been said that the heart and the materials relevant to the Tower of Babel showed that mankind was not only disobedient to God's command, instead of going out, they congregated, and they refused to believe God's promise that he would never flood the earth again. Now, recognizing at this point the extent of man's fallen nature and a proactive move of mercy to avoid another judgment, God thwarted man's plans by personally forcing the separation of peoples by doing what? By confusing their languages. At Babel, you can say that God divided the nations. But now, it's Pentecost. Humanity's been given a new nature through the indwelling spirit of God. And we see in some regard the reversing of the effects of Babel. How so? By personally unifying people from every nationality to form a new holy communion. Uh, community. And how did he do this? He used language, didn't he? The same mechanism for separating people at Babel is now used to unify them on Pentecost. Human language at Babel. God divided the world by confusing their language, but now on Pentecost, because man has a new spirit, God is unifying people from all over the globe by enabling everyone to hear the wonderful works of God and their own native tongue. Could it be that Peter was even considering this when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking of the church, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 3,000 converts. The big question at this point is what in the world do we do with them? I mean, imagine. Kind of freaks me out, actually. If like next Sunday, there were 3,000 people here, like, I'm glad Jesus is in charge of the church because we would really need to rely on him for some solutions. Like th these guys, th there was no intention of any of this. It's 120, they're meeting, they're being obedient, and boom, God added 3,000 people to the church in one day, and they're sitting back thinking, ha, like we're now responsible for them. Like we're, we need to do something. How do we care for the needs of 3,120 people? How do we bring new converts into spiritual maturity? How do we provide for spiritual health? Spur on development. What do we do? Well, we're about to see that there were four things essential to accomplishing the task of spiritual health, spiritual growth. These four th things we will see develop the blueprint for the church. Verse 42, we're told that they continued steadfastly. And the apostles' doctrine, one, fellowship, two, Thirdly, in the breaking of bread, fourth, and in prayers. Luke, he starts, right, by saying what? They continued steadfastly in these four things. Steadfastly means that they were devoted to them, that they committed themselves to them. Please note, the key to spiritual maturity, to developing spiritual maturity, 
is not that you do one of these four things or three out of the four or all four of them on occasion or when you feel obliged. The key, if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to see all that God has for you, if you want to see God work in you and work through you to its maximum of how God wired you and created you to be and then redeemed you to be, if you want to get the most out of the life that Jesus died to give you, then you need to take these four things and continue steadfastly to devote yourself. Aside from individually, I think as a church, we also, if we want to see spiritual health, spiritual maturity, if we want as a body of believers to see God do all that he can through Calvary 316, we also need to continue steadfastly in these things. So first, we're told that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You ever kind of wonder what in the world that is? Like we kind of read through it, we never really consider it. Like what is the apostles' doctrine? Like what, what is that? The phrase apostles' doctrine is in the Greek apostolos diadache, which literally means they continued steadfastly in the things that was taught to them by the apostles. That's the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine are the things that the apostles taught them. Now the question is, is what did the apostles teach them? And I think we find... Uh, demonstrated by Peter, two things. First, I think the apostles' doctrine incorporated, it included the fact that they taught the people who Jesus was and what he had done for them. I mean, this was the core of Peter's message, right? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus did for you. Let me tell you about about his death and about his resurrection and what he's up to right now. Like, with 3,000 converts, yeah, some of them would be familiar with Jesus, but as the church would grow, new people would be coming in that had no context to who Jesus was. And so they were teaching them about Jesus. Obviously, we continue in the apostles' doctrine for these lessons are included in what we have as the gospels. So the apostles' doctrine, we have that. It's the gospels, what Jesus did, who he was, what he accomplished, but also I think we can conclude from Peter's message that they also taught the people the very things that Jesus had taught them from the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, Peter, every point he makes, he's validating that point how? Through scripture. More than likely, the things Jesus had taught them. So Peter is just repeating what he's been taught by Jesus, which is interesting to me. They taught the Bible. You know, it's important to point out that the New Testament, it doesn't present anything new. Jesus, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And because of this, every concept that's discussed or expounded upon from Romans to Revelation finds its origin in the Old Testament and the scriptures And because it's fulfilled by Jesus, the apostles can interpret the Old Testament with the key. Like In essence, since Jesus was the key to understanding the Old Testament, the apostles were able to look back at the scripture with the benefit of the cipher, making their New Testament writings simply a commentary of the old. Like, please understand, the New Testament 
There's no new concepts presented. It's literally the best commentary of the Old Testament. Like, really, I would encourage you, other than the church, that was the only concept that I think would have been foreign to the Old Testament, but Jesus mentions it, so we're good to go. There's no other concepts that's presented. They're all expounded upon. Justification after justification, scripture after scripture. Read through Paul's writings, you'll see it. Now, it's not an accident that the apostles' doctrine is the first in the list. Though there are other things important to the health of the church, Worship is important to the health of the church. Outreach, important to the health of the church. There are a lot of things that contribute to the health of the church. But note that what comes first, there's nothing more important than teaching God's word. You know, as a fact of history, of church history, that there has never existed a revival or a great spiritual awakening that didn't have as a key component the teaching of God's word. Oftentimes, it was a returning to the teaching of God's word. So they continued steadfastly in scripture. And then what else? They continued steadfastly in fellowship. This word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. Though common in the New Testament, this is actually the first time you find this word koinonia in scripture. It should be pointed out that fellowship is probably the worst way to describe koinonia. The word in the Greek, it's very difficult to find an English translation for the complexity that the word presents. Association, community, joint participation, togetherness, oneness, community, fellowship. Konania is a very complex word. Think of it as life sharing. I think that's probably the best way to define it. The word speaks to the reality that the Christian experience is designed to be shared or lived with others. The early church found it essential for spiritual growth that they continuously place themselves under the encouraging influence of other like-minded believers. In some ways, you could say that they made it a priority to hang out with one another. But it describes a deeper connection than just that. Koinonia transcends simply spending time with one another it describes sharing life and Christ-centered community with one another. Yes, Konania can exist by watching the Super Bowl, but that's very surface level. Sharing life, living with one another, being there for each other, it's a deeper experience. I realize that the Konania connection is essential for a healthy church. Think about it this way. If we are all one body in Christ Jesus, but we're made up of separate individual parts, then we need to grow together or be as awkward as a middle schooler or face deformity. Like as a body, we need to grow together because if the feet get big, then we're tripping all over things. You see what I'm saying? We got to grow as one today. I believe the great issue facing the church in a generation of socially inept people is how to create, how to foster kononia within the local community of believers. We spend a great deal of time discussing this at our elders meeting. How do we continue to foster this? How do we continue to, to see people live with one another? In addressing the issue, the first thing we need to keep in mind is that genuine kononia. It came after what? The Holy Spirit. 
You see, genuine kononia is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit working organically through the natural connections of ordinary church life. Artificial kononia, it's an illusion, Michael. It doesn't exist. It's fake. Organic kononia happens when people congregate together on Sunday mornings. But then it moves beyond the inhibitions of a simple connection as the Holy Spirit leads, then produces an effort to make that connection transcend out the doors of the church as we meet with one another throughout the week. You see, understand, organic kononia is when you're like, hey, you introduce yourself to someone you didn't know, and and, and you're like, okay, I'm not gonna click with that person, it's okay, but you find someone that you kinda do, and then you start fostering a relationship here, and you take it outside. Like, grabbing lunch with someone after church is developing organic kononia, inviting a family to your home for dinner, setting up a play date with the kids, getting together to watch football or grill out. It can all be ways of developing life sharing with one another, building kononia. This doesn't mean you're gonna have kononia with everyone. And sociologists say that you have the maximum connect, like the maximum ability to have about 12 meaningful connections. You're not gonna have organic kononia with everyone. You can't, it's impossible, but you need to pursue it. The question for you this morning is how many Christians are you honestly sharing life with? See, a growing trend in church life is what I'd call the loner approach. The loner approach to the Christian experience. It's why most people gravitate to large mega churches because it's very easy to attend without ever actually connecting with other human beings. It's the truth. At 316, we don't exactly have that problem. Like us, love us, or hate us, you're going to get to know us one way or the other. (laughs) If you are introverted and find it easiest to engage in the you plus Jesus plus no one else Christian experience, please understand. I get it. By nature, I'm introverted. I have to force myself to be extroverted. It is something I consistently work on and surrender to the Holy Spirit. As a pastor, there's an element. I have to be extroverted. But my natural tendency would just be home, just to hang out with me and, like, my dog. That's cool for me. Like, I'm not one of those people that need a 1,000 people around all the time to feel good about myself. I don't like myself at all anyway, so it's just better just to hang out with me. But if you're introverted, I get it, I understand it. But understand, please realize, if you don't get over it, if you don't meet people in this room, if you don't carry those relationships outside of this door, what will happen is that you are hindering your spiritual development. Kononia is not presented as a suggestion. They continued steadfastly in fellowship. It's essential to your development. I understand that not everyone has the ability to make these kind of meaningful connections at church on their own. Some folks, they have a difficult time connecting with others. But this is why at Calvary 316, we've created venues of structured fellowship that are designed to create a more intimate, smaller environment to help you connect with other people, to develop organic kononia, Sunday fellowships, where we get done with the Bible study and we eat together. 
special events like what we did this past Friday night, which was awesome, our mom and kids outings, sisterhood events, our Sunday cereal bar, band of brothers, all of these things are designed. They're essentially created to yield a more personal environment so that you can create kononia. But here's the kicker. Calvary 316 cannot create kononia for you. We can give you opportunities, but if you don't come to them, if you don't take advantage of them, if you just decide you're going to live on your own, you can do that. We can't force kononia. We can provide you with opportunities, but you have to want it. You have to see a need for it. And then you got to take a step of faith and say hello. Ask if you want to go grab lunch. You got to be bold. And if you don't feel like you can, then when we spend some time in worship, you pray. Holy Spirit, give me the ability to do this. I know I need it. The third thing is they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Understand the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread. It's in the emphatic tense. It means a little bit more than that they had meals with one another. The idea is that it was a regular part of their lives to partake of communion, just as Jesus had instructed them that first Passover it would seem that they made it a priority to remember what Jesus had done on the cross by partaking of the elements whenever they gathered. This is why that we have communion available for worship every Sunday morning. When we gather, we want to focus in on the cross. Have you ever thought about it this way, though? Why don't we do communion outside of church? Like the phrase, they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. It actually gives the idea that any time they gathered, that they broke bread with one another, that they took an opportunity to recognize. Like, I, I get it, that there's a practical difficulty to having communion following your lunch at El Real this afternoon. That would be kind of strange. But think about it this way. When maybe you have people over to your house and you're closing your meal, that you take an opportunity to take of the elements at your home with Christian fellowship. That's the idea of the phrase, not just that they did it when they got together corporately, but even when they were hanging out with one another individually. I think in some ways we might over-formalize the act of communion when it should also be organic. Then we're told that they continued steadfastly in prayers. The idea behind in prayers is that they spent time praying on their own, which is a good thing but that when they gathered corporately, they also spent time praying. One commentator observed in the Greek, the definite article occurs before the word prayer. The text actually says, to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Obviously, this is a reference to something formal, to worship in which people got together and praised God. At Calvary 316, we have a prayer email that we send out bi-weekly that gives you a list of of needs so that you can pray for them on your own. But the Lord really spoke to me that we, we're not continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now we pray on Sunday morning. Andy closes the worship with a corporate prayer. We start our Bible study with a corporate prayer. We will end it with a corporate prayer. We, we include prayer within the service, which is a good thing. But beginning next Sunday, from 9.30 to 10 o'clock, and the kids zone before the children's ministry people get here, uh, one of our elders, whether it's Chad or Larry, are going to lead just a time of prayer. 
It's been said that when Charles Spurgeon preached, every Sunday he preached, there were 500 people in the basement praying. They had a commitment to prayer. And as a result, there was a moving of the Spirit of God. If you're looking for a simple way to get involved in your church, then come up between 9.30 and 10 and pray. And then grab a free bowl of cereal, develop some koinonia, and we'll have worship and a Bible study. It's a good morning. Your church takes these things very seriously. We've woven them into the fabric of our church. And we've done this because it's crucial for you to develop spiritually, but it's the blueprint for a healthy church. You see, without an attitude to continue steadfastly and the study of God's word, koinonia with like-minded Christians, keeping Jesus' work on the cross at the forefront of our minds by partaking of the elements, making prayer a lifestyle, not just a one-time event. Without doing these things, steadfastly devoting yourselves to these things, you will never, ever, See all that God has for you. Oftentimes, in counseling, when someone's life is just totally screwed up, or they feel like God's a thousand miles away, they're making a mess of it all. You know, if you ask and you just kind of walk down this list, you will see many of them missing. The solutions presented right here, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship with one another, communion, prayer. It's essential. So Father,